We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. This is the Intersection Hub podcast, where we have candid conversations for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie. And my name is Paul Nazareth. We believe in the power of community and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge, and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector. Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. Many smaller organizations are founded to solve a problem in society, and often they do not have a full-time fundraiser. In fact, a lot of people in those organizations actively try to avoid the F-word. Fundraising is often perceived as icky and ignored. In a world where fundraising is so misunderstood, Cindy Wegman has dedicated her career and her recent book to helping people who are reluctant to ask for money become fundraising superstars without, as she says, selling their soul. In this episode, Cindy helps us learn how to help reluctant fundraisers shift their mindset about fundraising and overcome the barriers to active participation in revenue generation. Cindy is the president and CEO of The Good Partnership. She sees fundraising as a tool for change. Cindy has a degree in women's studies from Queen's University, an MBA from the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, and over 15 years of fundraising experience. The Good Partnership empowers small nonprofits to have more fundraising success so that they can fund their important work. Please join us in welcoming Cindy to the Hub. How are you, Paul? Really excited for today. We've got uh, um, a quickly growing living legend joining us. Not to interrupt <laughs> too much, but you know, I, I, you know, people don't ever, people are a profit in their own home. And uh, Cindy, being the voice of one of Canada's most influential nonprofit podcasts, I'm excited to have a discussion with someone that's making a lot of change in our sector. Yeah, welcome, Cindy. Come on into the hub. Hey guys. Hi. So we're so happy to have you here today. We've been wanting to do this for quite a long time. So thank you for making it a priority. It's such a pleasure. Uh, and thank you both for everything you do and having these interesting, I don't want to say tough conversations, but interesting, necessary conversations. Uh, I know you do it from a place of deep love for our sector and our colleagues. And it is such a pleasure to join you. Well, we're happy to have you here. And that's very generous. Um, let's get started for people, you know, for people who've been living under a rock for the last couple of years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to work in this sector? Okay, so first of all, I need to carry both of you around in my pocket because you're the best hype team. <laughs> I love it. It just feels so good whenever, uh, whenever I talk to you. But uh, so I've been a fundraiser my whole career and uh, literally I decided I'm one of the few people who in university kind of raised my hand and said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a fundraiser. And partly because I've always 
it, it feels like part of my DNA to be involved in the community, to do community work, but I'm not a good frontline worker. <laughs> it's just not, that's also not in my DNA. And so I've been a fundraiser and I love it. I get to see the most generous side of people. But uh, when I started the good partnership, I really felt that small nonprofits were underrepresented in the conversations that were being had in the sector. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we play. And so that's what I do. We fundraise for small nonprofits. I teach fundraising for small nonprofits. And I feel like I, I basically live and breathe it. How how do you define small? Are you talking about organizations who raise under a million dollars of revenue? So I, because we are talking about fundraising, the way I usually think about it is actually organizations that don't have a dedicated fundraiser on staff, mm. or maybe that they have one full-time or sort of part-time because in Canada, especially, you know, with government funding, you can have massive organizations that have yeah. zero fundraising yeah. and it's kind of, it, it skews that. And to me, small is a mindset. And I know we're going to talk about this, but it's this idea that fundraising is either one of those things that we kind of just really want to avoid mm -hmm. or that you want to delegate out of your responsibilities just because you really don't want to do it. You don't like it. And that's who I feel like we're talking to most of the time. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, you, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. You go ahead. Cause I, I've got a, a thing to start. I want to ambush you, Cindy, with a piece of feedback I got from uh, a client of yours. Uh, uh -oh. it, it, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, real talk, we try to make things often about admiration. But let me just come at you from a place of jealousy. Uh, and <laughs> and it's, it's a, something that I interacted with with Kimberly for a long time in that you know, plan giving is my life, 20 plus years. But Kimberly has helped more small organizations start plan giving programs and feel good about them and find results than, than me and a lot of my work and even CGP in some ways. Well, you know, I had someone recently say to me, and it's so interesting because it's outside the podcast work that you do. It's the work at Good Partnership. And it came from my time at Canada Helps with thousands of small, really tiny organizations. And the person has said is that our interactions with Cindy is that she's one of the people who has helped the most amount of non-fundraisers, specifically executive directors, who were not just uh, scared of fundraising, but resentful of its role in their job mm. to do it and love it and make it part of the organization, not just part of their job. And let me tell you the fire to this of jealousy. It's because I'm just realizing, too, so many of us have spent so much time as fundraisers. But so much of what stops fundraising is the leadership. And there and I felt for a long time there hasn't been someone evangelizing to leadership, bosses, and boards. It's going to be my big for the next year kind of mantra because they're the ones that stop us or it. And mm. you've had some incredible results helping people love what we do who are not practitioners of it. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> oh my goodness. Know, I'd love to hear a bit about that that journey because it's something that I, you know, Kimberly and I struggle with, a lot of our peers struggle with, especially as they think about leading up, mm -hmm. is how do we help people see the value, love it, make it part of their life and job? Mm -hmm. 
Oh my goodness, Paul. First of all, again, thank you. I've been so humbled just to, to be here uh, and hear that amazing feedback because that is my mission. And, you know, while I run a company, I feel like we're a very mission driven company and it's so important to me uh, that we're doing good things. So thank you for that feedback. To answer your question, so part of this stemmed out of my very earliest uh, experiences in my career in an organization where literally everyone around me and we were we operated as a feminist collective back then, which is also a very interesting experience. But they felt that the government had a responsibility to fund the services that we provided, that money was bad, and therefore fundraising was this like, Ugh, you do this because we don't want to. Mm -hmm. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a pushover and I'm very dedicated and I will get shit done. I hope I can say that on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, sure. um, and so I didn't let that deter me. In fact, it lit a fire and I stayed there for four years and grew our fundraising by 22% on average every year over those four, four years. And But I definitely experienced that uh, the board members, my it eventually morphed from a collective to a, uh, there were three co-EDs and we saw a big culture change, but at the beginning, no one, like they, I feel like they kind of hated me, not because of me, but because of what I was there to do. Well, we've and talked about, yes, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We, we've talked about this. I'm yep. sorry. I know there's so much to talk yeah. about. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so much, but <laughs> We've talked about this. Fundraisers are often othered. And certainly yes. it's no secret that you know that I think it's the most grossly misunderstood profession yeah. on the planet. People just mm -hmm. don't understand what it takes to raise money. And so many people are scared of it. And if we mm -hmm. can, at the very least, first of all, I love small organizations. I love them because you can fairly easily get that double digit growth. You oh, can yeah. fairly easily build and 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 um, renovate, uh, restructure a fundraising program. So that's yeah. the beautiful thing. Oh yeah. They're nimble. I feel yeah. like they're on the front lines like this. There's yeah. so much love for the small nonprofits. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And yeah. if you can get the CEO and a senior fundraiser, and I've done this before, and I'm sure you have too, to really work in a symbiotic relationship that is sort of philosophy driven and culturally driven around building a healthy culture for fundraising, then you can just soar. Yeah, right. Exactly. So how do you think we do that? How yeah. do you think we take, well, this is a beautiful segue to mentioning your book, actually. Mm -hmm. How do you take a reluctant <laughs> fundraiser and help them see that this is not a dirty job? Yeah. So so often what I've experienced in our sector is that when we try and get those people to move forward to fundraising, we just give them tasks. Just do this. I remember like with an event committee, just if each person could commit to selling 10 tickets, we'd have a sold out event. Yeah. And so that's all we say. Just, just do this one little thing. Just sell the tickets or just make an introduction or, you know, just send that email. And it never gets done because what we're missing is the analysis of what's going on with people's mindset and in their brains, they might not even understand it's happening, but that's preventing them from taking action. And so we have to step back and actually look at the mindset and starting to shift people's feelings and beliefs around 
money and fundraising and nonprofit work mm -hmm. before we can actually get them to take action. I always liken this to like, it, it, it's any behavioral change, right? Um, it's not as simple as telling someone to choose the salad over the ice cream, right? If, if we all knew that that simple decision was going to make us have healthier lives um, or whatever goals we want, like it would be easy. Great. Yeah, I'm just yeah, going to yeah. eat the salad every day, but I don't. I, I don't sit either. down at nine o'clock at night and I eat a pint of ice cream because I'm stressed and tired and that's what feels good. So it's, it's the same thing in fundraising. We can't just say, oh, just this is what works. Just follow the path because there's so much going on inside of people. And these are stories that we've been told growing up that, that we've lived with in the nonprofit sector around the value of our work, uh, discomfort around talking about money. And I know even with plan giving Paul, like talking about death, um, these are things that we have to work on before we can mobilize people, uh, to actually do the sort of tasks or works associated with it. So that's really where I think we need to start and that I haven't seen that much. There's definitely bigger conversations happening around mindset and, you know, abundance mindsets and stuff like that. But we actually have to understand how our brain works in order to change that. Because as I said, it's not as simple as wishing it into fruition. You know, one of the weird parts is one of my struggles with medium-sized charities, which is a lot out there, is unfortunately the tactical is working too well. Mm. They give, they say to the boards, "You're going to do these ten calls, you're going to sell these ten tickets," and everyone else, "Sweet, let me do that and go home and forget about this forever." <laughs> yeah, you know, like I've checkbox, I'm done. Yeah, machine. fundraising is often machine, and we like people to believe that there's an algorithm for everything. Mm. Capital campaign theory. You know, like, you know, that's the challenge. And we've allowed people to disconnect. And actually, that's where, in a lot of ways, some of the big money of the sector continues to go is mm -hmm. separating money and meeting. And that's when we lose all of our power. And then we yeah. just become another, you know, a, a photocopy machine. Mm. And it's, oh, I mean, there's so much you said that I, that I want to unpack. Um, the disconnect between the money and the mission is a big, uh, is a, big concern for, I know myself and a lot of other fundraisers and executives in the sector. Um, but also this idea that it's sort of like just caught, you know, rinse and repeat, right? Here's what's working for the big shops. We can just replicate this machine and make it happen. And that's where I also see a lot of smaller and mid-sized organizations fall short is they, they try and copy what they see on the outside. Or they say, okay, we just need to put this in place and without doing the analysis and I, like I get asked all the time, will this, how do I make this work for us? Or, you know, I, <laughs> I saw I crowdfunding campaign to believe they have time. Yeah. For so we are going to yeah. talk about GoFundMe. We're going to, we're going to talk oh, about yeah, GoFundMe because yeah. I get that like, okay, Crowdfunding, I feel like it's less sort of sexy than it was a few years ago, but you know, people just let's just do a, a crowdfunding campaign. Let's just do this without the analysis or like ice bucket challenge or, you yeah. know, what I always, I believe in mission centered fundraising, which is what is going to not just fund our mission, but enhance it. What's going to showcase it, deepen it and enable the work even more beyond just the money. And to do that, you have to do the work to say, is there alignment between our fundraising strategy 
and our fundraise and our mission and how are we building that into our organizational culture and habits. And so to me, that's also such a big piece, because if we just keep trying to copy what we see everyone else do, well, first of all, we're, it's shiny object syndrome, right? You're just chasing the next trend instead of sticking to what really works for your organization, what's meaningful to your organization and focusing on changing the culture and engaging people and you know, having fundraising being something that lights people up, you know, that gets them excited and makes them feel good. Um, so yeah, there's, <laughs> there I definitely, and, and the, I mean, we could definitely talk about the trends more, but you know, trends are not there's plenty of people talking about that. Yeah. You know, you know, a lot yeah. of people who listen to this podcast are the people who are struggling with, you know, how do we, how do we bring everybody along? Mm -hmm. This really interesting, weird interaction, actually with Kimberly, uh, when Kimberly came in to do some coaching and uh, organizational facilitation with my own team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that was the, the result, the outcome is that people felt more connected to the mission and the work we do, motiv motivating them more in their jobs, but helping them understand how that plugs into the achievement. And the result has been, you know, me as the fundraiser also feeling less alone. Mm, absolutely not just supported but more connected to everybody and we just you know we don't ever make time to do team building and i don't like the word because that that that's what actually i don't know what how it puts it off this is organizational <laughs> strategy yeah right yeah. so you know kimberly is out there doing that on the it's, on the coaching um, side you're so sweet Paul. it's uh it's because what you're talking about cindy when you deal with when you're trying to convert reluctant fundraisers is really going upstream to address a cultural shift that's required in an organization. Mm -hmm. And in order to address that cultural shift, we need to have, we need to step back, redefine if we need to our values, redefine our purpose and really stop thinking about the money. If I could mm -hmm. wave a magic wand, yes. all organizations <laughs> stop thinking about the money, but they're stuck in this 12 month budget cycle, right? And the other big challenge is that stewardship doesn't have a revenue line up against the cost line. Mm -hmm. So it's so hard to measure the value of building strong relationships and shifting cultures. Um, and when we can do that and change the conversation to that, then we'll just start raising money. That's the byproduct to all of those other things, right? Exactly. Okay, well, I, I want to tie. Ask you to go deeper on this because both yeah. of you have done this. I'm talking about the ED who didn't sleep last night because they're worried to hell about payroll. Yes. How okay. That person to stop thinking about money because, damn it, it's their whole world. So hard. It's yeah. their whole world, but also that's the way they've been trained to think about fundraising and money, yeah. right? That is a bit of a scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. So the way I describe, cause there's a lot of science behind this. Right. And so I, and I really like to lean into that because I think, um, a, it, it's not personal when we understand that it's not just a personal decision I'm making every day to feel stressed and to lose sleep over money. This is, this is how we've been conditioned, but that also it's something we can change. So the, the, I talk about the neuroscience, the way I like to describe it is there are all these 
pathways in our in our brain, these neuro these circuits. And what happens is the more we repeat behaviors, the more we create these shortcuts in our minds, in our brains, not our minds, in our brains that allow our brains to function more efficiently. And so 90 to 95% of the decisions we make every day are on autopilot. And so our brain is just, we're not even aware that we're making decisions, but we are, and our brains have to do that because they're protecting our energy. And so what happens is the way I have, most people can relate to this example, let's say you're starting a new job, right? You're going, you're driving for the very first time to the, to the office post COVID pre COVID times, um, that first drive is the first time your brain is experiencing this. And so you probably have your GPS open in front of you. You probably aren't listening to music. You don't have any podcasts on. You're looking at all the road signs. You're watching the traffic and you take that first drive. Okay. When you're a month or two on the job, that drive is mindless. You're kind of cruising to work. You're listening to your favorite podcast. You're having a conversation and you end up at the office and you're like, oh, what just happened with all that time? Who knows? But I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Then, now I used to work near the airport and every once in a while I'd be driving to the airport and end up at my office. (laughs) <laughs> right. Or as I've heard people on their way home with where, where their partner tells them to go pick up a bag of milk. Um, I guess this is only for your Canadian ones or a carton of milk. Um, <laughs> go pick up a carton of milk on the way home and you totally forget. And you pull up into the driveway and you're like, oh, palm of the forehead. I completely forgot to stop. That's autopilot. That's what it feels like when we are perpetuating or living in these myths and mindsets around fundraising. We don't stop to think about it. And so we actually need to step back and say, wait a second, I need to rewire these paths. I need the autopilot to be different. And there's a whole process to do that. I didn't come up with the process. I there's like a lot of people who to teach habit change, synaptic bridges, and the coaches call it muscle memory. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But you can change it, and that's where we need to start. And it's identifying our existing feelings and beliefs. So and catching ourselves in the moment, and practicing and building habits uh, around positive fundraising behavior and attitude. And actually the two of my favorite habits and Kimberly already touched on one of them because these are very easy things, fundraising habits that I think open up or start to change that mindset. And I'll explain both of them. So one is donor meetings. It's getting to know your donors at all levels. And I think I could, literally talk about days for this. So just stop me if I like take too long, but (laughs) so I ask everyone I teach about fundraising, I ask them to go and, and get to know their donors. I give them a script, an email to use, to reach out. And it is like pulling teeth. I can't tell you that is such a big barrier for people to just reach out partly because 
very often in fundraising, we think of people who give as people who have lots of money and in a lot of small organizations that are grassroots and, you know, social justice based, we see that as other, they can't be us. And so there's this really so distance and divide and we're uncomfortable with that. Or I've heard a lot of organizations who might have like donors who give smaller amounts and they think it's not worth their time because, and, and nothing could be further than the truth. And I know I'm preaching to the, uh, preaching to the choir here, but these it's so important. And if, if people can have one, there's two fundraising habits, as I said, but this one, if you can get to know your donors, build relationships, understand why they give. And I think it's so important for people to understand why someone might give you $20 a year if they're on low income or if they don't have a lot of resources, you are so important to them that they're making space. And actually I was just listening to, um, the conference that agency is putting on today. And I, blanking on the name of the conference, black fundraising. Yeah. And, uh, and they were talking about that too. Like even people give people without means and resources, we all find a way to give and contribute to what's important to us. And we need to understand that as fundraisers, as executives, executive directors, board members, we need to know what someone, what is motivating someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of extra income or um, a lot of room in their budget, what's motivating them to give? But well, what do you say to the person that says, we could never ask anyone of low income to give to us? We it's not up to you. Yeah. It's not I'm your choice. You. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's disempowering yeah. to take away the right from someone yeah. to invest in the world that they want to create and build. Well, yeah. that's one of the shifts that we need to make when we have conversations around what it takes to build a solid philanthropic program is yeah. the, the mindset that we're, we're taking something from somebody. We're not. We are offering opportunity. And I know this sounds like a sales pitch, but, yeah. but really, really, we are offering opportunities for people to invest in things they care about. Mm -hmm. And it is so not about our organization. Yeah. And why would we ever deny someone that opportunity? Yeah. Um, but going back to the mindset, and this is why this practice, this habit is so important because most people don't understand that. And you have to understand it in a way that is not just the three of us sitting here telling you, yeah. you have to hear it directly from donors. I the other habit that I think is so important, yeah. you mentioned it before, Kimberly, is stewardship. Yeah. And this is something because if you can take 15 minutes of your day every day and do a little bit of stewardship, mm -hmm. you will see huge results. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be the thing that you do once a month or that, again, I hear so many organizations say it takes too much time mm -hmm. and you 15 minutes a day. I'm sorry, if you don't have that for, for stewardship, like there's something, again, it's your mindset you're blocking. If it's important, you will make time. I always, there's lots of tools on how to find that time and, and manage your time better, which I talk about a lot, but, um, just doing little things, calling, we all know, calling your donors, sending little videos, uh, emailing them an article of something that's relevant, uh, 15 minutes a day during your workday every day will is a habit. It's something that keeps fundraising 
at the top of your mind. It's something that becomes, you do it every day. It feels good because you're sharing, you're caring, you're building relationships, mm -hmm. but it shifts your feeling and beliefs around your donors and the role they play in the organization and your relationship with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you can, if you can help other people within the organization see that fundraising, that 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 is 90% of fundraising is good donor stewardship and relationship building and just get them to do that, yeah. then they'll be on side. And then yeah. everybody's flying in the same direction. And I've done exactly. this with boards before when I do an interview before a board training with each board member to gather perceptions around philanthropy and fundraising and, and, and it's, it's always the same. 90% of the board says, we don't want to fundraise. I don't like doing it. I'm here for the cause. I'm here to share my expertise, but I don't want to ask anybody for money. And then in the workshop, when you share those results and say, Hey, none of you really want to fundraise, but look at all these other things that drive, let's talk about what it takes to drive good fundraising. How many of you are willing to do these other activities? Mm -hmm. And they all say, absolutely, they will. So yeah. it's a matter of shifting the expectation and shifting the conversation. Yeah. I have a question for you, Cindy. I'm curious about, you know, in order to do all of those things within an organization, we need to um, build good relationships with our team and we need to earn some trust with some influencers in the team to try to help move that kind of shift forward. Mm. And do you have any thoughts or insights on how we might be able to do that? Absolutely. This is, I, I mean, that was me in so many organizations when I was a sole fundraiser and I walked in and you know, the team was really suspect that my kids would say super sus. Mm -hmm. uh, like, super they what? were like, Super sus. sus. That's a thing. Sus. She sus. doesn't spend too much time on TikTok. It's okay. It's, I know. I, I know. I, and you're not on Clubhouse, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think my kids get it from their video games, like mm -hmm. Minecraft and Among Us. But yeah, um, this is so. And and there's just this huge mistrust. And yes. part of this, and I know you both will agree with with this, is some of what I talked about in terms of getting to know our donors we also have to do internally with our organizations. Mm -hmm. I always, whenever I've started a new job and I've gotten better at this over the years, and I always preach or teach this, which is if you're getting started with fundraising, get to know your donors, get to know your team, get to know the program staff, the frontline staff. I worked at a, a healthcare organization, a small one, and for the, and they, they hated the last fundraiser who was in the job. Like they really did not like her. And so I was in a different building, but every day I would cross over. They had lunch. Like they actually sat down as a team and had lunch together, which I've never experienced anywhere else in my career. But I made sure that every day they were having lunch. I joined them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I bought each person a coffee and I said, tell me about your work. Mm -hmm. What do you do? If someone wrote us a check for a hundred thousand dollars today, what would you do with that? What are your hopes and aspirations for the organization, for your work? To me that, and again, this is where mission alignment comes into play. I think about it as two webs. There's like, and we often talk about our donors, motivations, what they care about and all that kind of stuff. 
where fundraising is really successful is where that overlaps or connects with the web of what the organization, the frontline workers, the team members believe in, care about, and want to see happen. And where those two can meet and marry, that's where the spark is. And so you can't just sit in isolation in an organization. You have to become a part of the team. And it's it sounds, again, like, Mm, duh, that's not hard, but so few people make time for this. It's it requires so effort. And you know, I'm a big believer. This is a big secret of mine: is is eating lunch with the team, forcing yourself to not eat at your desk or spend every lunch with donors or external professionals. Yeah. Right. My first job, I was 19, and I was introduced to the staff, our first fundraiser in a hundred year old organization, and the director made my introduction an apology, and they actually said, "I'm sorry, everybody." <sighs> We've had to hire one of these people. And I mean, it, yeah, what? And that goes back to the mindset mm -hmm. for them to to me, when you're ready to hire a fundraising staff full time, that means your organization has grown. It is a, success, a sign of success that you you're big enough that you can invest in these things so that you can raise more money to do your work and keep growing. That should never be never be something you apologize right. for. But again, that's how we twist. I mean, if you look at the there's patterns to the shortcuts our brains make, and one of them is that uh, we look for information that reinforces our existing beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is why things like Facebook and TikTok are so powerful, is because they feed back to us exactly what we want to see and hear to reinforce our existing beliefs around whatever. And mm -hmm. so. I, I've seen like information or, or organizations in the same position and the way you frame it is based on the mindset, right? It's what do we believe already and how is this proof of that? And so, yeah, that just is so heartbreaking because it's such a good news story. There, well, it, and there's another side to it though, which you also touched on because I also had a very similar experience uh, and talked about this on uh, Janice Cunning's uh, fundraising leadership podcast is because of staff turnover, because we are often going into organizations and replacing fundraisers who were not successful. And of course they were not successful because the organizational culture did not set them up for success, but then we have to go in and reframe all of that for them with such great humility. I've done it, like I've tried to do it like Oof. a bull in a china shop before and it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> we, we really We're do. We're doing our best, but boy, you have identified some, one of the weirdest, most uncomfortable things in our profession. But Cindy yeah. mentioned it as well. You know, I've been in jobs where I had to sit and listen to people whisper about my predecessor and how she sucked. And it's like, okay, eventually, once you've purged all of those thoughts and that negativity, let's talk about how to make this work better now. Yeah. Uh, and it's not because the predecessor sucked. It's because the organizational culture does not support the kinds yeah. of activities that are required. Yeah. I, I just want to stress something you both touched on here, because I, I think this is really important for listeners. And, and it's a strong epiphany for me, because for me, I've worked in, in major gifts and some really big organizations with big gifts, and it's easy to tie meaning to money. Mm. And actually very often, you know, I try to help people to get quick wins and I know that makes them feel good. I'm going for that drugs. I'm going for dopamine hit. And I feel like money is that meaning. But what the two of you have been talking about is using the ultimate dopamine 
human connection. Mm-hmm. And that you're saying talk to donors, which we know as fundraisers is drugs, drugs, drugs. You talk to donors, you get that human connection. You get the most aspirational, inspirational part of life. And actually, a lot of leaders and people are denying themselves that. So that's a, actually a big takeaway for me is donor meetings as a habit. And again, shifting stewardship inside of that feeling of, of meaning over money and the connection and actually using that natural human dopamine of connection from, but from fundraising and stewardship and actually making a connection between the two. That's a crazy powerful lesson for fundraisers out there. It's super powerful. And, and I've done, when I used to do major donor audits, there's one donor that I will never, ever forget. Um, there's an organization. My client was in Toronto. The executive director didn't have a vehicle. This donor was up in far North of Toronto about two and a half hours away. And we were saying, I was chatting with the donor, what motivates you to give? How can we earn a position to be one of the top three organizations you support? And he said, well, I have $20,000 and I wanna give them, but I'd like to sit down with the executive director and talk about it. So I went back to the executive director (laughs) and said, you need to rent a car. He's like, oh, but that'll take the whole day. I'm like, dude, you're, you have a million dollar budget. This is a $20,000 donation. It's waiting for you two and a half hours away. Go sit down with this donor. Wow. <laughs> oh, okay. I see you, Kimberly, and I one up you because I haven't okay. even, uh, this is a bone to pick because <laughs> I've worked in organizations where it's not necessarily the executive director, but I've had executive directors say, oh no, we can't put this staff person in front of donors. They're not polish i'm using air quotes for the pod but they're not they're not polished they're not professional they're not whatever and that oh it makes my spine tingle like i can't stand that because i'm sorry if your donors can't connect with the people who are doing your work they're not the right donors for your organization and one of my absolute favorite things to do with organizations is engage all staff in donor engagement because they're the experts. That's the other thing. No one likes if talking about organizational culture. Like if I walked into an organization and I all of a sudden was like, well, you're the expert, but I'm just going to, you know, take that expertise and reframe it and put it in front of these fancy people you can't talk to. Mm-hmm. You're not going to like me, but you're a subject matter expert. You know what you're doing. I want you to be that voice because you're amazing. Yeah. And, and so it's been such a powerful thing for me in, in my career in really making sure that frontline staff actually have that voice, that they are part of the process, that I'm not trying to co-op their work, that I in fact just want to support their, their work. But I've had a number of organizations have that dynamic where they're like, no, 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 we need the the suits to to engage with donors. We, and we then- don't control fundraising anymore. Nobody controls fundraising anymore because, yeah. frankly, now we've got donor advised funds. Where you know, I've got I've got a surgeon at a hospital doing an end run around the foundation, talking to the donor, creating a separate foundation somewhere else that will fund their vision. I've got a new donation platform profiled on the front page of the Globe and Mail business section a month and a half ago. The entire platform is about circumventing the foundation and the fundraisers to connect donors right to researchers. And when it all fails, they launch a GoFundMe. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Like they, yeah, everybody's going right direct back. to market. And so that's a good, I want, sometimes I use fear to remind them, you thought you had control. We don't have control anymore. So bring them in. Yeah. Be open and porous. That's the digital world we live in anyway. Yeah. So embrace it. But this yeah. is cool that you got some real methodology. Well, and that's it. the authenticity that we're living with, that the world is craving, that we've been forced into as a result of this pandemic, right? I yeah. don't, I don't, I don't own a suit anymore. And yet I used to have a closet full of them, right? And it's not because I'm a larger person. It's because I just don't want to wear suits anymore, right? <laughs> We're in a different place, Kimberly. I'm well, mourning yeah. the loss. This was my, <laughs> oh, this was my armor. This was my protection. Mm-hmm. You know, as we talk about fundraisers put, being put in uncomfortable and sometimes scary places, it was my physical protection. So when we talk about now this new world, everybody's showing up in sweatsuits, I'm actually terrified because in an authentic open world, when we're talking about and again, in fundraising and in the world of charity, and we're talking about big, heavy subjects, you know, women and domestic violence and, and health and culture and all of that. These are these are not easy things to be putting on the table. So that's partially, too. I think a lot of fundraisers and, and charity staff need to also do the self-work. And you've talked a good deal about this, Cindy, on the podcast, how to help people do the self-work around the psychology of social good, because, you know, fundraising can be pushed back into a very safe place. That's why people want a lot of people like fundraising to be transactional. Mm-hmm. I put my hand out, you put some money in it and you go away. You don't ask for accountability. You don't come back and ask me what I did with the money. And you also don't demand uh, justice or or anything like that from us. And all of that's being broken down. And again, if we don't bring it up, donors are actually too passive aggressive and Mm -hmm. polite because they don't say, I got a problem. They just stop giving. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I I, want to get back to... Okay, you say what you think. I made a note. I'll get back to it. Perfect. So I'm like making so many notes while we're talking, but I want to loop this back to what you said before around, you know, ascribing meaning to money, because this is also something I see where we um, ascribe or project our feelings and beliefs onto other people, especially our donors. So how many organizations have you walked into and they say, our donors are fatigued when you're like, okay, wait, well, what's your stewardship? Okay. Well, in fact, you're just not stewarding them or, you know, we're asking too much because one person unsubscribed from your email list, you know, like we, money doesn't have meaning. Money is a tool for other things. Right. And so often I see, and again, this goes back to mindset where organizations take their feelings and beliefs and they project it onto whoever they're talking to and make decisions based on that instead of what they can hear directly. Like I literally had a a client the other day in one of our coaching calls say, our donors are fatigued. I'm not really sure. Like, I feel like we're asking too much. And I said, have they told you that they feel they're fatigued? What is the evidence you have to support this? And they're just like, oh, well, no, maybe I should go do that because it's just that that's how they feel. They don't want to ask. And so I don't even, sorry, I don't even know how to wrap that no, thought up, but I don't, I don't because I do it. Yeah. You know what? Boards in a big way. They're Do doing, I, the boards are doing a lot of this projecting. Mm-hmm. I'm talking over you because I'm so excited about two. Okay. I think that what you're pointing to, Cindy, sometimes in some organizations, they're forced to 
fundraise because that's important for mission delivery. And yet they don't deserve the money because Ooh. they have very dysfunctional operations and their staff know that. So mm. here's the elephant that we're going to put on the table. You know, organizations need to earn the privilege of a gift. They don't have an inherent right to it. Mm. And so that's some of the cultural things that you're, th this is why if somebody is reluctant to fundraise, we need to really dig into what you're talking about. What is it? Do you not think this organization is worthy of support? And if you don't, then we better fix that first. Mm -hmm. And the but other who, thing, who is the person who's got to tell the emperor they have no clothes? Usually, it's the consultant, actually. But, oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the other, the other thing, though, is that when you were talking about program staff earlier, um, and connecting the program staff with the donor it is beneficial for fundraisers to be a matchmaker there and to have the confidence and get out of the way because people are connecting to the mission. And that was something that we really did a lot of work on when I worked at Ontario Nature. And we've got so many wonderful case studies there, but it was talking to the program staff, you know, the donors there absolutely loved going out with bird nerds and going out with guys who would dive into rivers and pull turtles out and going out with people who could identify mushrooms. They don't want to talk to the fundraiser. All our job is, is to help the program staff identify that moment where that person wants to do more. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we often forget to teach our program staff. It's like, okay, you took them out on a canoe. You've left them really excited. You pulled a snapping turtle out of the river and showed it to them. And you left them there? Like, that's like, <laughs> can we just finish this, please? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such an interesting mm. You said some interesting things there, and I definitely have come across organizations. I saw, oh my goodness, I saw in a Facebook group someone anonymously post they saw their they caught their executive director stealing petty cash, and they weren't sure if they should uh, report that to the board. And it's like because because it would create too many problems, and and so there are organizations, and I don't want to gloss over that 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 really do need to get their shit together and, yeah. and, yeah, you know, that right. might not be. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's a lot of them that are actually wonderful and they just don't have the, they, they're just misaligned when it comes to mindset. They have, we've been raised with these stories about money and even just the value of our work in our sector, right? Like the idea that we shouldn't get paid a lot of money because we're nonprofit. Um, you, the the idea that I so many organizations should we pay our executive director our first time like when we get to mature to the point where we have some budget like is that a paid role I mean yes of course it is but there's huge stories in our society that no this is volunteer work and it's it should be driven that way now obviously this is the most important work in our society we should be throwing all of our resources at it but there so I just want to highlight that there are there are more organizations I see that are definitely worthy that are doing great work but they just have these stories around money and around fundraising so uh yeah 
I think, but I've definitely, I think we can all say that we've seen the organizations that should. That's just, you got to get it together. Got to look and have a hard look at themselves. So, you know, I know that you help people do this in your work. And again, I'm excited to see how the book helps us, uh, you know, really helps organizations think about how to actually tactically get around to some of this stuff. So I'm going to pull this all together. Mm. Um, In Canada, we know that the charitable sector, I mean, this is the poverty mindset, Cindy, that you're talking about, um, that we're all walking around hat in hand. And we don't really want to help improve our governance structure because, you know, it's too hard. And um, in Canada, our sector is worth 10.7 or $8 billion to our economy. In the United States, it's $470 billion. And, and we need to continue to work to improve our governance practices and improve our systems and structures and, and take the responsibility of delivering those services that businesses and government are not providing. That's what our sector does. This is mm-hmm. what we do. It's fundamentally important to society. And, um, and so with that, you know, I'm so glad that you wrote this book because I think it's going to help a lot of people solve this problem around a reluctance to talk about these things and fix these things. And I wonder if I could just give you an opportunity to make any final comments. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, thank you both so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, And I think you're right. Like, and and it goes back to that idea of of the meaning of money, and when you frame it that way, Kimberly, around the size of these sectors, and what could we do if we inject even more money into this work, and I this a total off conversation around the role of government because while a lot of people think government should be funding this work, I think government fundamentally upholds status quo and they're not necessarily the right funders for a lot of organizations, but that's another podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that we need to unlock the leadership in our sector to be able to feel great around mobilizing money for this work. So thanks for, for letting me have this conversation with you. Thank you for being here. Cindy's new book, Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul, is available for pre-order right now. You can visit raiseitbook.com and be one of the first people to get it. The link is in the show notes. Cindy, thank you so much for making it a priority to spend time with us. We always love chatting with you and you are welcome back anytime. And thank you all for joining us today. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, review, and join the conversation and the community at intersectionhub.ca. See you next time.